So it is January 4th, it is 2015, and this morning we're going to talk about a Holy Ghost revolution. Amen? amen. Oh, that's not a good enough amen. I want a better one. Amen. Do, you, do you want the power of God? Yes. You know, everybody can preach about the power of God. They can talk about the power of God. They can talk about the baptism in the Holy Ghost. As long as you don't expect anything to happen, you're on good ground in any church you go into. I have found that you can look at somebody and say, receive the Holy Spirit. You can even make a certain sign over them and say, receive the Holy Spirit. And we're all good unless somebody does. But I want to see a revolution in our hearts and lives. I believe that the manifestations of the Holy Spirit are for today. I want to talk to you about something radical. Is that okay? Even if it's not, it's what we're doing. So might as well brace yourself for as long as it takes. The word radical comes from a Latin root in English. English is not the holy language. It's not even a pretty language. Anybody who speaks more than one language, English is usually their least favorite. But in English, the word radical has a Latin root. And that Latin root, radicalis, has to do with pertaining to roots or having roots. Understand then that when we use it as an adjective... It speaks of somebody who is favoring fundamental change, a change at the root cause of a matter. The call of the gospel is first and foremost a radical call. It is not possible to add a little bit of Jesus to your life. It is not possible to address only the branches. What we need is a holy root. And if you're tapped into the holy root, then the branches are holy as well. In the name of Jesus... The king of Israel is that holy root. To get firmly embedded in Christ is to have a radical transformation, a transformation at the very root. And if he is flowing through you, then it stretches to every area of your life and your life overflows to others. To be filled with the spirit of Christ is to do the things that Christ did, to have the character that Christ had, and hear me, to have the power that Christ has. This is the clear testimony of the book of Acts. It is the clear testimony of the first several centuries of Christianity. They love not their lives so much as to shrink back from death. The word revolution literally comes from a root that means turn around. It could almost be used in replacement for the word repent. A fundamental change in power or organizational structure that takes place in a relatively short time is how you define the word revolution. I want a radical Holy Ghost revolution from the very core of our being through our outermost extremities. A fundamental shift in change, a change in the way that we think a change in the way that we act, a change in the way that we believe, most importantly, a change in the way that we live while we traverse this ball of dirt that we call the earth. The gospel is a call to a radical revolution. At the root of the matter, we need a fundamental change to take place, and it has to happen in a quick time. This is not a thousand-year metamorphosis. I know we've said, be patient, God's not through with me yet. I know that we have all of those cute little bumper stickers. And yet he who has been set free is free indeed. 
In the name of Jesus Christ, if the power of God is in you, you do not have to be a slave to sin any longer. Don't tolerate it. Don't tolerate it in you. Don't tolerate it in others. Don't live with it, next to it, or around it. In the name of Jesus, declare war on it. Could you put John, the first chapter, and the 29th verse on the screen? This will not be something that is a surprise to you. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What did the Lamb of God come to do? It starts in you. He comes to take away the sin of the world, but where did he start? The kingdom is within you, he said. It starts in the heart and mind and soul and spirit of an individual who has had a radical transformation by the power of the Holy Ghost. When did it happen to you? Did it happen to you? You know, growing up around a thing does not make you it. Any more than eating at a donut shop makes you a cop. Did we say that out loud? Or going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Or better yet, going to a football game makes you an athlete. We need in the center of our being the spirit that compelled Christ to be the Christ. We need in the center of our thoughts the Holy Spirit of God. The root of the problem is sin. We have to get radical with sin. You might consider a radical amputation of sin. If your smartphone causes you to sin, get a dumb phone. If your TV is causing you to sin, hit it with a hammer. It's a lot of fun. If your brother's causing you to sin, don't hit him with a hammer. (laughs) The problem is pervasive. It's systemic. It's epidemic. It's not just your sin. It's everybody's sin. And we live in a culture that no longer wants to call out sin. We would love the power of God, but we don't want to do what it takes to get the power of God. The solution is a fundamental change in our power structure. It needs to be radical. It needs to be revolutionary. And it needs to take place now, today, a total turnaround. Turn with me to Mark, the first chapter. These are the first red words in the book of Mark. Say there when you were there. In Mark, the first chapter, starting in the 14th verse. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into the Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. Somebody say the time has come. come. Don't wait till tomorrow. The time has come. He said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. You cannot believe the good news until you turn and repent. Repentance is necessary for the power of God to come upon you. Repentance causes the power of God. You say, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? He cleans a house and he fills a house. It's His power that cleans it, and it's His power that fills it. You couldn't come to Him if the Holy Spirit didn't enable you. But when you come to Him, you know it by a life that is marked by repentance. In the 26th chapter of Acts, Paul said that he taught Gentiles everywhere to turn from darkness towards the light and to prove it by good deeds in repentance. Too long have we said that repentance is an inner thing. Repentance is a change of heart or change of mind. No, no, it's a total radical revolution of all that you are. The church of Jesus Christ cannot dabble in the world. We cannot do it. 
Because he came to destroy the work of the devil and the power structure of the world is based upon the devil. Jesus immediately begins recruiting people to his cause of revolution. The word repent is a call to revolution. The word repent for the kingdom is, is near, is a radical revolution in the way that your life would run. No longer would you call the shots. No longer would an emperor in Rome call the shots. No longer would a tax collector extorting you call the shots. Your life would be ruled by the power of God. I want to tell you absolute lordship is the goal and nothing less. If you bought into the idea that we're just old sinners and we have to sin while we're in this body, it is a lie. Sin is the exception. It is not the rule in the life of the spirit-filled believer. But if you teach people that they are sinners, guess what they do? Dogs bark, birds fly, and sinners sin. In the name of Jesus Christ, we need a revolution that takes you from a saint, from a sinner to a saint. We need a revolution in our heart and mind that is no longer willing to put up with things that we know are wrong and not do things that we know are right. So often we define our holiness because we don't do certain things. That is not how the Bible defines holiness. When we know the good that we ought to do and don't do it, we sin. Let me ask you, what has he put before you that you've left undone? This bowl of dirt has made a revolution around the sun one more time. 2,015 times since the birth of the Christ. How many more laps it will make around the sun before there's a revolution in your life is up to you. But I can tell you, you don't get to know the number in advance. The men who followed Jesus left all to follow Jesus. What did it cost you to join the revolution? You want to know whether you're in it? You want to know how radical it is? Look and see what it cost you. Did your friends turn their back on you? Did your families throw you out? Did people see you as fundamentally different immediately? Well, you might not have experienced a revolution. Because when somebody has had a total revolution, when they have been born from the kingdom that is of heaven, you can't hide it. The time for talk in half measures to alleviate us from action and to insulate us from cost, they need to end. I want to tell you that the 12 men who followed Jesus affected every area of society in their known world. Today, Christians are multiplied. Some 40% of the globe, they say, has heard the gospel. Shouldn't our effect be far greater than those 12 men? Twelve scared little Jewish boys turned the world upside down for Jesus. They took the gospel to the known world of their time and they loved not their lives so much as to shrink from death. The apostle Paul wrote the words, in fact, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So let me ask, what is our excuse? Could it be that we are a fan of the revolution? That we write checks to the revolution? That we in general support the revolution, but we're not fighting in the revolution. Your salvation is not a place for you to sit. Salvation is active. It's living, it's breathing, just like the word of God. I want to tell you today, I hope to call you to action. I am so proud of this church. 
It has been the life's work of the Stevens and the Piros, and now the Sutherlands joining it. And you families have made it what it is. If you compare us with other churches, you might feel good about us. And yet, when we compare ourselves to the standard that is the Word of God, we often fall woefully short. So I say, do not rest in apathy in 2015. Don't sit on your laurels in 2015. The revolution is not done. And if you've experienced it in every way, if it's turned your whole life upside down and now you are a soldier of Jesus Christ, then look around you. We're still outnumbered. We're still behind enemy lines. There are still more who are nominally lost than there are who are radically saved. i got to tell you, That if eating a cracker does not save a baby, then a sinner's prayer when you were eight that produced no changed life did not save you either. You know a man is born of heaven when the deeds of heaven begin to show up in his life. You know a man is born of heaven when the substance of that kingdom begins to show up in his life. Is your life fueled from a heavenly power source? Look at John 14. We'll be in verse 11. Say there when you were there. I'm going to do everything I can for you to not tune me out today. So if you're fighting to stay in tune, you can raise a hand. I'll help. (laughs) We're small enough I know everybody's name except one or two of you, but I'll ask. What would be the point in preaching if we were not preaching to you? What would be the point in sharing the gospel if I didn't intend for it to move you? You do not go to a doctor's visit to find out how your neighbor is doing. You go to the doctor's visit to get your checkup. And with all of my heart, I hope that you get a Holy Ghost checkup today. I don't have any time to waste. And you don't either. John 14, verse 11. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. What does your profession of faith look like? You say, oh, I'm a Christian because I believe in the Nicene Creed. In the year 325, our forefathers adopted this creed and I can quote it to you, so I'm a Christian. You say, I'm a Christian because I got a birth certificate on my wall that is a baptismal certificate. I'm a Christian because I grew up in a Christian home. Mom and dad said that when I was so young, I don't even remember it. I declared Christ as my Lord. Or can you say I'm a Christian because you can see the evidence in my life. The old man has died, is dead, is dying, is perishing from neglect. All things are becoming new. It's a brand new world for me. I've had a revolution. See, you might not like Eric Stevens or Matthew Pirro. You should like Matthew. He's pretty. I've been calling him Matt Hamid here lately because of that beard. Let me go ahead and get my offensive statement out of the way for you. Islam is a satanic, demonic religion led by a pedophile prophet. And their book is full of violence and filthiness in anything except peace. That disclaimer is now out of the way. I promise to do that every message this year. One more good use for Facebook while I'm on a strange aside. I posted an article about the marriage of Muslim men to six-year-old and nine-year-old girls. 
I don't want to hear religion of peace in reference to Islam anymore. And if you equate it to Judaism or Christianity in this church, I'm going to embarrass you publicly. Okay, I love you. I'll educate you. But I'm not going to tolerate that because it's a satanic spirit. Back to Mark. No, back to John 14, 11. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Can you tell, by the way, that we are not scared? I've done everything I can to pick a public war with Islam. And uh, I'm going to keep doing it. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Now, let me ask you, is there an exclusion there that says, unless you live in Sugarland? Is there an exclusion there that says, by the way, I just want to warn you, this verse will only be good for, say, 40 years, because we're going to have a cessation of the gifts. We don't see... What, what does it say? Anyone. It says it... It says it plainly. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. What does that tell us if we do not see the deeds of Christ in our life? We need to grow in our faith. Does it surprise you? The men who followed him, who lived with him, who ate and drank and breathed and watched him walk on the water and saw him get tired and all of those things. How many times did he look at him and say, are you still so dull? How many times did he look at him and say, oh, ye of little faith? How many times did those who love him find when compared with him, they were greatly lacking? It caused some who were humble of heart to say, I do believe, Lord, help me believe. (laughs) In the name of Jesus, we cannot insulate ourselves from the truth. The works of Jesus are supposed to follow our lives. And if they're not following our lives, we've not believed. We've not stretched. We've not trusted. We've not tried. Maybe we've sat on the sidelines of the revolution. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these. Is that not the most embarrassing statement in the New Testament? I mean, it is crushing. Go ahead and take out your black highlighter. Just just wipe it right out. We might as well. Scarcely do you ever find a Christian who believes this. We can try to interpret it away statistically. We can say, well, we've seen more people saved than Jesus did in his ministry. Say, as a body of Christ as a whole, we see more healings. How could you derive that kind of interpretation from this verse? The clear implication is not about the whole body. It's about you personally. It's about me personally. It's a call to the greater works of God. Let's not shy away from them. Let's joyfully... Step up to the plate and see an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name. Is Jesus a liar? Is Jesus a lunatic? Is Jesus Lord? If Jesus is Lord and He said this and He proved it by raising Himself from the dead, then we ought to be able to trust it. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. In an age of hyper-prosperity, hyper-grace and hyper-faith, it's like the church is hyper for all of the wrong things. Like a spoiled child that was given too much red Kool-Aid. We've run around yelling, bless me, bless me, bless me. 
The heart of the gospel is bless them, bless them, bless them, not bless me. You've been blessed by the heavenly power source. And you were blessed to be a blessing to others. I have no interest in fleecing you. I'm not fishing for your funds. Whether you give or not is between you and God, and I sure don't promise you a return. I'm going to tell you the truth. The kingdom is hard. It produces rugged, calloused, yet somehow inwardly still beautiful men. (laughs) The kingdom is hard, but it's worth it because he provides for you the power to do it. Amen? Amen. We're going to cover Mark 16. It's going to hurt. You've heard it many times and it's going to hurt again. And then we're going to move. There you go, brother. Better than a righteous man strike me. It's an oil. It's a kindness on my head. In Mark 16, look at verse 24. Say there when you were there. I said Mark. I meant Matthew. You knew I meant Matthew, huh? You know what I'm going to preach better than I do. Then Jesus said to his disciples... If anyone would come after me, say anyone, Anyone. he must deny himself. Oh, get out your black highlighter again. I thought that the Abrahamic blessing was coming on me and I would be ever increasingly wealthy. I thought the Abrahamic blessing would come upon me and I would bear children into my second century of life. I thought the Abrahamic blessing was coming upon me and it was, hey, I've got the prayer of Jabez hanging on somebody's wall, right? What happened to this call, this radical call to revolution? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. How's that for an altar call? You can't build a stadium like that. He didn't promise donuts and gift certificates. He didn't promise even your best life now. He certainly didn't tell you every day was like Friday. He said, if you're going to follow me, it starts with denial of self. Oh, goodness gracious. We get so distracted by what we think we need. And at the time of year where we say we're honoring his birth, we have an absolute orgy of materialism. It's ridiculous. Then we wonder why we're starry-eyed and unable to discern God's will. I love that you have things. I have things. God gave them to us for our enjoyment. 1 Timothy 6 says that. And he commanded those who had them to be generous towards those who did not. Where is that in our theology? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The heart of the gospel is denial of self and following Christ. You cannot both indulge self and be following Christ because Christ's path takes you to a cross. The spirit of Christ will crucify self. Sadly, many who are supposed to be filled with the Holy Ghost, are so self-promoting, so self-glorified, that it's difficult to see the self-denial that the Holy Spirit brings. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. In the going to lose your life, the truth is you find life. In the giving your life away, the truth is you find life. 
He goes on to say, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet he forfeits his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with the angels and then he will reward each person according to what he has believed. It doesn't say that, does it? Well, just change the words of Jesus. The whole church is doing it. He'll reward you for what you say that you have believed. That is not what it says. He will reward you for what you have done. Oh, church, real faith shows up in what we do. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross and His cause. We find life by giving it away. And we strive for a better resurrection that is given us at His coming. I got to tell you the terrible times that Paul warned Timothy about. Go to 2 Timothy 3. They're not only upon us, we don't even recognize what makes them terrible. When you're in 2 Timothy 3, say, I'm there, Pastor. In 2 Timothy 3, he says this. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Well, good thing there's none of that going on, right? There's a pastor from the state that I was raised in that the last time I saw him preach, there were piles of money on the stage beside him. And the great contribution of his life to the body of Christ is the phrase, money cometh. What an embarrassment. Jesus preached no such thing. Paul warned against these things. Boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Oh, well, at least I'm not preaching about anything that affects our lives. Verse 5 is the climax of the statement. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. He goes on to say, have nothing to do with them. To be involved in Christianity that still acknowledges, allows for, and doesn't discourage, does not declare war on sin, is a gospel without power. To be involved in a Christianity that believes that most of this book is no longer relevant because when the last apostle died, they should have warned us. It was all going away. It's powerless Christianity. At best, it's a starter kit for the truth. Church, you know what makes terrible times? When people look like Christians, but they don't act like Christians. It's terrible times when you cannot tell the difference between the world and the church, so you make up a whole new category called the church world. You know, I've often bemoaned the church this, the church that. I want to tell you it's not true. The church is radiant. The church is beautiful. The church is spotless. The church is the bride of Christ. He will present her to himself spotless. There is no problem in the church. The problem is that we can't accurately define what the church is. It feels too exclusive. And yet the men who wrote this book told us, test yourselves to see whether you're in it. 
work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We say, no, 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 be secure, be secure. Wrap a warm blanket around yourself. Don't ever cause someone to doubt. What if you're wrong? Church, what a fearful thing it would be to fall into the hands of a living God having proclaimed that you were fighting in His revolution and you were really on the wrong team. I got to tell you, when somebody's been born of heaven, you know it though. You don't need a doctrine to convince you. His spirit is inside of you bearing witness with your spirit that you belong to Him. You can hear his voice saying, I delight in giving you the kingdom. Don't be scared. Don't back down. Don't let up. Don't shut up. Push forward. I'm with you. Of course, if we allow apathy to overcome the church, then it's just good talk, isn't it? Oh, church, we need a revolution. Turn with me to Acts, the first chapter. Are you all already bored? What's that line in the movie, Are You Not Entertained? Boil down your message to 29 minutes. Don't mention sin. Do mention blessing. Barely mention Jesus. Make it a footnote to satisfy the curiosity of the critics. But mostly, give me what I want. Health, wealth, and success. Build the biggest building that you can build, but it'll be a totally powerless stadium. And those who are supposed to be filled with power, all we're concerned about is praying and watching each other fall. I love it that sometimes people are overcome with the power of the Holy Ghost and they can't stand. I wonder what the point is to watch hundreds fall while some sit in wheelchairs. And I wonder why we're so eager to pray for headaches when there are people that have no legs. Could it be that we have fallen into circus acts, that we've become charlatans? Oh, we need a revolution in the church. People wouldn't be scraping gold dust off the floor and looking for angel feathers if they knew that they had the divine presence of God. We would not put up with preachers in motorcycle boots kicking people in the face, listening to female angels and having sex with people in their congregation if we had the power of God. Oh, that we could have the power of God. And what does it take to get it? Repent. Repentance precedes power. Turn over the the roots of your life and say, Lord, what is not submitted to you? Jesus, why is this craving in me for other food? Lord, why am I not happy with what you're feeding me? Why do I long for something else? Lord, what is this law waging war within my members? Put it to death. Help me. Lord, I want to declare it before you so that I can stand against it and fight. Are you in Acts, the first chapter? Acts could be considered the second volume of Luke. And in the 24th chapter of Luke, just to catch you up on the story, we get to an end of all that Jesus said and did. And when we get to that end of all that Jesus said and did, he opened their mind to understand the Scriptures. That's Luke 24, somewhere around 47. And when he opened their mind to understand the Scriptures, the first thing that they got was that forgiveness, repentance of sins would be preached to every nation. How many churches are actually concerned with going to every nation? How many families are actually concerned with going to every nation? How many of you are actually concerned with going to every nation? We want power. We want power. We want power for what? The revolution is worldwide. It's not contained to our needs and wants and fancies. Power for what? 
in the fourth, fourth verse of the first chapter, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, this is the same occasion as in Luke 24, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay. If all of this is, is an intellectual acknowledgement. If I can walk by you and go, my daddy beat your daddy in dominoes, receive the Holy Ghost. And that's all that happens. And... I was confirmed as a child. I was lost. I used to steal the communion wine and the priest was a homosexual. But I was confirmed in that church. And he one time waved his hands over me and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. I was told that's what the baptism in the Holy Ghost is. And because I was told that, I was pretty sure it must be right. How could you wait in Jerusalem for that? Nothing happened. How would you know when it happened? Where was the revolution? You know, I got thrown out of that church for getting in a fight on stage while doing a puppet show for children. (laughs) But we were all saved. Why were we saved? Because we attended the church. Nowhere were the fruits of Christ in our life. Of course, they weren't in the priest either. In fact, he's caught in a public sting and on Channel 2 News. My goodness. Jesus did not want to spread a powerless Christianity. They were incomplete without the baptism in the Holy Ghost. And because they were incomplete without the baptism in the Holy Ghost, he said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive it. It's a very remarkable statement considering that the 20th chapter of John, he already blew on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Apparently you can receive the Holy Spirit and be regenerated, but not have received the Holy Spirit in a way that has left you immersed in His power. There may be more than one encounter with the Holy Spirit. And if you read Acts 2 and see that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then read Acts 4 and see he was filled again with the Holy Spirit, you might get the idea that you are to continually be being filled with his Spirit, which is, of course, what Ephesians 4 says in contrast to being filled with wine. Oh, church, we need a revolution in our power. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice their hearts were no different than ours. He's talking to them about the unadulterated power from heaven. And the first thing they say is, how's it going to affect us? It was not an unbiblical request. God had promised it. There would be four Gentile kingdoms that would rule the earth, and then the kingdom of God would come upon it, and Israel would be chief among the nations. It was a promise they were waiting to see fulfilled. And yet, listen to how he answers them. It is not for you to know the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Shut up. We're not going to talk about that. When you're concerned with self, you're off track. The Spirit of Christ will fill you to be concerned with them, not us. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Do you, do you know it when your power's been out and the electric company turns the power back on? How many, how many of you would not notice if we turned out the power for a few weeks at your house? I bet you'd rejoice greatly when the power came back on, wouldn't you? Don't tell me that when God fills you with power, you don't even notice it. Don't tell me that when God fills you with power, it's not enough power. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. Understand that the very last thing that Jesus Christ said to his church and those that were leading it is you need power. Wait on it. Yearn for it. Long for it. And when you receive that power... You'll know it because you'll be filled with a desire to take the gospel to the furthest reaches of the planet, no matter what it costs you. These days we ask, are you a full gospel church or not? And that's become a war of words, you know. Are you a full gospel? We certainly are not. (laughs) Well, what part did you cut out, you know? Uh, are you a, a spirit filled church, you know? And somebody said, what kind of spirit are they filled with? I mean, This has become ridiculous marketing. How can you claim to be filled with the Spirit of Christ if the deeds of Christ don't mark your lives? How can you claim to be filled with the Spirit of Christ if you are not concerned with getting the gospel to every person on the planet that doesn't have it? You know, the men who founded this country, they began to dwell upon a concept that they were under oppression and that the Creator had endowed all men with certain unalienable rights. And because of that Creator's desire for liberation, they had a duty to throw off the bonds of injustice. The idea that this nation was founded under was that anybody who wanted to do the same could immigrate here. The kingdom of God is very similar, except we're supposed to take it to them. We are supposed to bring the rule of God to them and you cannot do it without the power of God. Somebody tried to go set up the United States in the middle of Saudi Arabia. It's not going to happen. And would you want to? I'd like to set up the United States of its founding there, but not of its present condition. I think Saudi Arabia is being set up here. Do you find it strange that the church has just laid down with almost no opposition, totally intimidated, totally scared, because the followers of a pedophile satanic prophet will cut off your head? Because the men who wrote this gospel all lost their lives. And for the first four centuries of Christianity, the expectation was martyrdom. They had a power that the church barely has twinkling within some of its members. But I still know who is the source. I'm torn. I don't know how full of a meal you want today. I know what I like to do when I go to a buffet. I don't feel like I got my money's worth if I don't go back many times. I know it's shocking, isn't it? (laughs) Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness get filled. We don't have to have a marathon service. We don't have to do it. If you've got all that you need, well, you should probably stand up and walk out now. But if you're not seeing all of the power of God that you would like in your life, then you might need to consider something. I'd considered preaching to you about the revolution that happened in Israel. The absolute turnover that the book of the law caused. But I'm going to save that message for another day. And I'm going to go down a different road. 
I do want to tell you that a man named Manasseh in Judah was wicked. Tell you that his son Ammon was even more wicked. And a man named Josiah who found the book of the law totally revolutionized the kingdom. The last righteous king of Judah before a captivity. I don't know how many more generations we're going to get, but in mine, I'm going to do everything I can to start a revolution. Could you put Proverbs 21, 29 on the screen? This is a brief aside as I get into what I hope is the heart of the matter. A wicked man puts up a bold front, but an upright man gives thoughts to his ways. I can't tell you how true this has been in religious conversation. Let me just go ahead and tell you right now, doctrine is a wonderful servant. If you have a doctrine that has opened up for you the Word of God, it has produced in you fruit that is discernible in your life, that doctrine has helped you understand the Word in a way that you are living it out practically and you are thankful for it. Praise God. Doctrine is a wonderful servant in that regard. But it is a terrible master. If the doctrine that you hold has limited the Word of God, has no practical application in your life except to cause something not to be there, what a terrible choice that is. And then let me ask you, how clearly is your doctrine stated in the world? Because in the Word, because when we confront these issues, there is no more bold person than the person that has decided before hearing the evidence that they know what the outcome is. And the religious world is rife with that. You hear explanations like, I don't know what this scripture means, but I know what it cannot mean. That is an actual quote from a book on eternal security by one of the world's most famous teachers. I cannot tell you what this difficult scripture means. Instead, I will tell you what it cannot mean. It's in our library. It's under the section cult. (laughs) It's actually not a cultic book. It's just a cultic statement. I hope I'm going to pray. And ask that the Holy Spirit would now enliven our hearts. There were plenty of preachers in Jeremiah's day. Lamentations is Jeremiah crying over their preaching. In the second chapter, in the 14th verse, he says, The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin. They did not ward off captivity. The oracles they gave you is misleading. False and misleading. What happens if the predominant voice that represents Christianity is no longer preaching the truth? Well, the people go into a captivity. And sometimes you can see it plainly. Other times it's the kind of captivity that just keeps them from bearing the fruit that they should bear. In the fourth chapter of Hosea, the sixth verse, listen to this. My people are destroyed for lack of? Oh, you can quote it. Do you know what the next verse says, though? That's Hosea 4, 6. Do you know what the seventh verse says? Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you as my priest. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will ignore your children. 
The more the priest increased, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glory for something disgraceful. I will not trade the power of God for riches. I will not trade the power of God for the favor of my brothers. Don't trade the power of God for a silly doctrine that you didn't even believe until somebody else told you you had to believe it. I challenge you. If you have been reading the word and nobody else had told you anything about it, could you have ever come to some of the conclusions that were given to us in the 16th century? And then ask yourself, if these men were right, why did God hide that from the church for the first, second, third, fourth century? Oh, man. That we would have the power of God. Jeremiah in the second chapter says that his people had committed two sins. They had forsaken God and they dug their own cisterns. What does it look like to dig your own cistern? It's all these little workarounds we have for what the scripture actually says. So that we soften its effect in our life. So when we read about the rich young ruler... And we see that Jesus said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, that you might have treasures in heaven, then you can follow me. We're sure that he's not talking to us before we read it. He may not be speaking to you. That's not the point. The word is living and active. The point is that you came to the conclusion before you even read the scripture. And why? To insulate yourself from the cost of the gospel. When we read... Go into all of the nations. We're sure that that is not our call before we even read it. And why? To insulate ourselves from the the searing nails of the cross. That we could have a fresh encounter with, with the Scripture again. That in 2015 we could have the kind of revolution in our hearts that said, Lord, give me baby skin again. Let me read it for the first time again. Almighty God, let me throw away the work of Calvin. Let me throw away the work of Wigglesworth. Let me throw away the work of Bonhoeffer. Let me throw away the work of Finney. Let me throw away the work of all of the great men that went before us and let me encounter the Scripture for myself. I don't want to preach the Christ that Billy Graham knows. I don't want to preach the Christ that Jimmy Swaggart knows. I want to preach the Christ I encountered. I don't want to preach about somebody else's filling with the Holy Ghost. I want to preach about our experience with the Holy Ghost. Oh, church, I'm not trying to cast dispersions on the great men that went before us. We stand on their shoulders. I'm simply saying that I want to encounter Christ for myself. Let me tell you about a compelling pattern historically. In John 4, 24, could we put that on the screen? In John 4, 24, Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman and he said, God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not enough to claim that you have pure doctrine. If the Holy Ghost is not bringing your doctrine to life through his word, if it's not showing up in your life, 
If your doctrine cannot be worked out practically, then it is practically worthless. The Spirit of God joins with the Word of God and creates in you worship that is sacrificial. Worship that diminishes you and exalts Him. Put John 6.44 on the screen. In John 6.44, we see these words, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How do you come to Him? The power of His Spirit has to draw you. Can't be the compulsion of a parent. It can't even be the compulsion of a preacher. His spirit draws you. Put John 7.37 on the screen. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Next verse. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Let me ask you, are there rivers of the Holy Spirit flowing out of you? Could you look at someone and say, if you don't believe me, believe on the evidence in my life. John 14, verse 15, puts it so clearly. I got to get to John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Pay attention to this next part. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you. What's that say? Do you mean that you can love Jesus and have his spirit around you? But not have the revolutionary power flowing out of you? If John 14 is correct. How about John 20, 22? And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Spirit. Is this before or after the day of Pentecost? It's before the day of Pentecost. And yet they still had to wait in Jerusalem. Have you had an encounter with the Holy Spirit? Amen, I hope you have. You cannot be born again unless He has led you. You cannot be born again unless He is the regenerating work inside of you. And he still told men who had been led by his spirit, who had his spirit with them, who had received his spirit by his breath, you wait in Jerusalem till you receive the power from on high. How will I know when I get the power, Lord? Well, he told them that they would take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. The compelling pattern in the scripture is that it is not enough to talk about the Holy Spirit. It's not enough to receive the Holy Spirit even in an instance. We need a continual filling and refilling of God's Holy Spirit. By the time you get to the second chapter of Acts, you know that they could see and hear the presence of God filling people. What must that day have looked like? 
they heard the sound of rushing wind as if God breathed into the people. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire rest upon each of them. Oh my goodness. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, you knew the power had shown up. How about Acts 8? Look at verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, say accepted the word of God. If you've accepted the word of God and you've been baptized, wouldn't you normally think that you were saved? When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Can we say that you need an ever-increasing measure of the Holy Spirit? Can we say it's possible to love Jesus? To cling to Jesus? But still not have been empowered to the extent that you can be empowered? How about Acts 9 in verse 17? A young man named Paul. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Are we going to say that, that Paul saw Jesus? Receive the call to go to the Gentile heads of the world, to be a light to the Gentiles. And all the things that he said happened to him at his conversion. And now here, days later, he's not saved. Could we say that? I don't think so. He's been obedient to the revelation. He's gone to the house he was supposed to go to. But now he needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh my goodness. How would he accomplish his call? He couldn't accomplish it without the power of the Holy Ghost. Say, well, I don't know if you can see it and hear it here like you can in in Acts 2 and in Acts 8. Paul told the Corinthian church that he spoke in tongues more than all of them. He said, I wish you all did. But when you come together in your church meetings, I wish you cared more about everybody else and you'd prophesy to them. Unless, of course, you prophesy in tongues and you interpret Because that's equal to prophecy. I'll just tear it out of your Bible. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, he said that these things must be done for the edification of the church. Oh, well, it doesn't build big churches, Lord. We're not going to do it. Then what you build is not a church. By the time you get to Acts 10, we have Peter showing up. And while he is preaching to people, these no longer in Jerusalem, no longer in Samaria. They're actually in Caesarea. While he's preaching to them, in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. If you look at Acts 19, we see exactly the same experience. But my favorite is Acts 11 and verse 15. Listen to these words. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as He had come on 
us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter speaking to the church in Jerusalem, the entirety of the known church of his day. says, when I was in in Caesarea Maritime and I was talking to those Gentiles, they had exactly the same experience that all of us had. You want to know why the church had a revolution in the first century? You want to know why it was radical to the core? The normative experience of all believers in the first century was not that you believed on Jesus and sat in a church. That you believed on Jesus and He put His Spirit inside of you in a way that changed everything. It affected every social strata. It affected every area. It left men full of the power of God. And they couldn't go to the world without it. At least they had to be warned to not go and try. How many of us have tried to walk with the Lord in our own strength and wonder why we fail so miserably? Oh, that we could fall on the altar of God's power today. How did Josiah do what his daddy couldn't do? What his granddaddy couldn't do? And what his children after him for three generations did not do? It was the power of the Holy Ghost that he saw when reading the Word of God. Don't let any doctrine, don't let any man, don't let any dead man especially rob you of the power that comes from reading the Word of God as you embrace His Spirit. Ask yourself, am I just putting up a bold front or am I thoughtfully considering my ways? Listen to me, you who call yourself spirit-filled. Speaking in tongues is not nearly enough. It's at best a start. Prophesying, not nearly enough. You can speak in tongues all day long, prophesy all day long, and you know what? Until we see the dead being raised, until we see blind eyes being opened, until we see men and women giving their all for the cost of the gospel, we have fallen so woefully short of what it means to be spirit-filled. I speak in tongues every day, all day. I wake up in the middle of the night preaching and speaking in tongues all of the time. Scares my wife to death. Actually, she's bored with it now. She says, go back to sleep. That is not what it means to be spirit-filled. That's at best just a little bitty baby start. To be spirit-filled is to have that revolutionary power of the heavens in you, working on the outside of you. Don't stop short. Could you stand to your feet?